Experts claim there is nothing tougher than a diamond. But at Diamonds Direct, we beg to differ. Have you ever met a mother? Strong, radiant, timeless. This Mother's Day, give her the gift that meets her match. With diamond jewelry starting at $200, plus Diamonds Direct's exceptional quality and unbeatable everyday price, you're sure to give her a gift that wows this generation and the next to come. Experience the thrill of jewelry shopping done right at Diamonds Direct. Diamonds Direct. Your love, our passion. When you buy Kroger brand products, you feel like you're winning. That's because they offer proven quality at lower than low prices. In fact, we guarantee that you and your family will love how Kroger brand products taste. Or you get your money back. So next time you're shopping for the family, look for delicious Kroger brand products. Because they'll make you all feel like you're winning. Shop now, in-store, or online. Kroger. Fresh for everyone. If a new house is on your wish list in the next five years, grow your savings faster and experience your dreams with an Ohio Homebuyer Plus account from Kemba Financial Credit Union. A savings account specifically designed to save for a new home where you can earn 7% APY, a $500 matching bonus, and a $1,500 mortgage closing cost credit. Learn more at Kemba.org. Offer expires March 31st, 2025. APY equals annual percentage yield. Restrictions apply. NMLS 292230. Equal housing lender. Federally insured by NCUA. You all know I'm a big fan of flow states of consciousness, where we are completely in tune with what we're doing, and all time and concerns recede in the background. This is why I'm excited about this new endeavor hosted by DJ, music producer, and software engineer Bobby Light. It's called Flow State, and it's a new kind of show designed to help guide you into a deep state of focus. Each episode provides 30-minute sections of uninterrupted music. This is when you can focus on the task at hand. The music sections are separated by five-minute intermissions to remind you to take a break. You can listen to Flow State now on Spotify. Flow State was made using Anchor, a free creation tool brought to you by Spotify. You can make your own talk show about music using your favorite Spotify songs. Just download the free Anchor app or visit anchor.fm. Welcome to the Psychology Podcast, where we give you insights into the mind, brain, behavior, and creativity. I'm Dr. Scott Barry Kaufman, and in each episode, I have a conversation with a guest who will stimulate your mind and give you a greater understanding of yourself, others, and the world we live in. Hopefully, we'll also provide a glimpse into human possibility. Thanks for listening, and enjoy the podcast. Today, it's great to have Paul Bloom on the podcast. Dr. Bloom is the Brooks and Suzanne Reagan Professor of Psychology and Cognitive Science at Yale University. His research explores how children and adults understand the physical and social world, with special focus on morality, religion, fiction, and art. He is past president of the Society for Philosophy and Psychology and co-editor of Behavior and Brain, Behavioral and Brain Sciences, one of the major journals in the field. Dr. Bloom is also author or editor of seven books, including Against Empathy, The Case for Rational Compassion. What a delight to talk to you today, Dr. Bloom. Nice to see you again, Scott. We've we've known each other for a while since your Yale days. Yeah, a long time. um, Attending your lab meetings was one of the highlights of my graduate school uh, career. So well, I remember it was great having you there. So it's nice, <laughs> nice to see you again. Thanks. Nice to see you too. Well, we're going to talk about some uh, like your, your classics as well as some of your newer stuff. Um, but before we get there, I wanted to back up a bit 
because I don't think a lot of people may know about your graduate research, which I thought was pretty revolutionary um, as well. The work you did with Steven Pinker and that that sort of stuff. Do you mind going back to your graduate school days and talking a little bit about um, your earliest research in this field? Sure. Um, I was an undergraduate at McGill, and I, uh, I was lucky enough to connect with John McNamara, one of these chance moments where you connect with a professor who changes your life. And um, <clears throat> John was very interested in language. And my early work as an undergraduate was on language development and word learning. And so I, when I went to graduate school at MIT, my advisor was Susan Carey. Mm. And I did work on semantics and on conceptual structure. Um, my dissertation was called something like semantic structure and language development. And after being in graduate school for five years, I think I had one paper that was coming up on that work. So things are very different than they are now. Oh, and yeah. um, a lot and of pressure. A lot days. of a lot more pressure now. Nobody, nobody just you know. I would never if if with the record I had back then, I would never get a job now. <laughs> um, and um, but I also did some work with Steven Pinker, and uh, together we wrote an article called a theoretical article called Natural Language and Natural Selection where we argued um, that human language is a biological adaptation. It's mm -hmm. a Darwinian adaptation. And you might think, you know, a lot of time has passed. And you might think that what an incredibly boring argument to make. You know, of course, language is complicated and structured and natural selection is the only game in town for, for the, the origin of complex structures. But at the time, it was extremely controversial. You know, on the one hand, you had people like Noam Chomsky, strong nativist at MIT, where, where I was a student. Right. Um, who are who were very critical of natural selection still still is. On the other hand, you had a lot of people who would argue that there's nothing special about language. Language there's no such thing as the evolution of language because language is just a byproduct of what you get when you're smart. You can learn language. So we published this in the journal Behavioral and Brain Sciences, which was a lot of fun. We got dozens of, of heated commentaries. Got to respond to them, and um, and then many years later, this is a journal I now I now I was going to say yeah. Did, did you ever think that you would end up being the editor of it, of that journal? No, 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 for, no I didn't. I didn't. I didn't. It's 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 actually a very fun journal to edit. I um I get to to encourage people to submit uh, material on uh, ideas, interesting ideas that I see. I get to encourage their submissions. I get to see a lot of stuff before it comes out. Um, because we're a theoretical journal, we don't have to wrestle with the sort of replication crisis and statistics wars that the rest of the field is involved in. Yeah, it's kind of it's a real pleasure being involved in that journal. I imagine, I imagine it's a it's it's a, it's a great journal in the sense that uh, it's high quality articles, but also this debate aspect of it uh, is uh, something you don't often see in other journals. It's like a one shot deal with the yes. other articles, and then yes, so and now, then people just talk about you behind your back. You know, that's right. It is you can still get talked about behind your back, but you published <laughs> in BBS, you have you know. 20 to 30, maybe a bit more people saying bad things about you to your face. <laughs> and you have to deal with you, it. And then, then you get to respond, though. <laughs> yeah, you have to deal with so, it. <laughs> so you have to deal with it. But it's, uh, many people find it a very exciting experience. For sure. Well, I mean, just, uh, just historically, that time period um, with Noam Chomsky there and you and Steven Pinker, I mean, that's, that's just a very, in the history of psychology, I feel like that was a very historic time period. And that debate about his language um, you know, to, uh, like a module, so to speak, or yeah. is it um, 
you know, sort of gnomes, more, more of gnomes view. I mean, that's to this day, um, I, don't, I don't think that that's debated today. I think it's pretty much well accepted, at least by evolutionary psychologists, it's accepted that there is an evolved function uh, there. But um, is anyone still arguing like um, that, well, no, evolutionary didn't have any forces specifically on uh, the structure of language? I think there's a lot of people who would argue that language is better explained in terms of cultural evolution than biological mm, evolution. I see. The, the thing to keep in mind is, you know, my field of developmental psychology, I think, is at root pretty empiricist. Empiricist in the sense that there's a lot of rejection and skepticism about innate ideas about hardwiring. Um, and and I, I think deep down, a, lo- a lot of people in developmental psychology feel a little bit bad that Skinner didn't quite win the day and are always hoping for him to come back. Yeah. And, uh, and so, so my own, my own biases, uh, you know, I think informed biases is that, uh, a careful look at psychology suggests a lot is hardwired in an interesting way. Mm. But it, it, I, to answer your question, I think there's still a lot of controversy. Okay. Um, fair enough. So with this, uh, discussion of, uh, what's hardwired was, I mean, uh, please explain to an audience that might not be familiar with the phrase, um, like what you mean by hardwired, because I think sometimes there's misunderstandings about what that means. You know, like I think Steven Pinker has done a great job in some of his writings trying to make it very clear, you know, what that, that doesn't mean that like it, it. So in fact, it means it requires environmental input. You know what I mean? Like people think like hardwired means like, oh, it, it doesn't require, you know, any input. It's just going to, you know, automatically express itself. And yeah. if you could please dispel some of that misconception, that'd be great. You know, everyone who's thought about innate ideas and hardwiring and nativism has always been clear on exactly the point you're making, which is typically these things need some environmental input to grow. Um, color vision is a great example of something that's built in. You know, no, not even the most ardent empiricist would say, oh, we just learn to see in color just the same way we learn to play baseball or we learn to do crossword puzzles. You know, color vision is part of what our species has evolved to do. Same with growing arms and legs. But at the same time, unless you have the proper input, visual input in the case of color vision, food in the case of arms and legs, the growth won't happen. Or if it does happen, it'll be stunted and so on. So one way to think about what it means for somebody to be innate or hardwired is just that it's not learned. It's not acquired through observation, generalization, induction. Rather, it grows. But just like what you're saying, to say it grows doesn't mean that it's independent of input and also doesn't mean that it's present um, at birth. So puberty is an example of something which probably is not learned. It's not people don't learn to, um, to, to show the signs of, of puberty at that time of life. But at the same time, of course, it's not present at birth. It comes in many, many, many years later. So, so the fact that something isn't there at birth does not mean uh, you should reject the claim that it's hardwired or built in. That's a great, a great example. Um, I've always been a big fan of uh, Rochelle Gelman's research, mm-hmm. and um, and you know she talks about it as a like in terms of skeletons. You know we have these built-in uh, skeleton structures that environment kind of like where our attention that focuses our attention on what to pay attention to in the world. I mean, people, if you really, if people really thought about it, like we wouldn't want 
nothing to be an eight. <laughs> that would be yeah. a, a mess. Uh, isn't there a, a, a quote about the big booming confusion, you know, that William James is a William James quote, right? Yeah. I mean, thank God. <laughs> thank God. Listen to me. Thank uh, the evolutionary process. <laughs> oh, God, whatever. Um, no, that, no, nice, nicely put. No, I, yeah. I, no, that was unintentional, you know, and then I was like, oh, my God, that was kind of funny. But, um, you know, but thank whatever. Whoever I'm thanking um, for that process, if, if even it's uh, random, you know, uh, variation selection – that you know we have some in inbuilt input or else we would be it would take ADD to another level. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, I think you're right. I think you're right in both ways. First thing, one way to think about this is a sort of um, a, a blueprint, or uh, I think Gary Marcus talks about a first draft, mm. a certain fundamental starting point. But you could also get this through this another way. So there's a lot of interest, as you know in computational models of learning, in Bayesian yeah. models, uh, in neural network models there used to be. And one of the discoveries that, that uh, rediscoveries that always comes up is, unless these things are, are preset to certain mm. parameters, um, they don't learn. You know, a, pure, a purely unbiased learner is a fiction and couldn't get off the ground. So true. You need something constraining as learning. And that's another way of making sense of innate ideas and innate categories. Oh wow! This this might be a total tangent, but I've been kind of diving into the intense debates in the machine learning literature about um, you know about bias um, and the the, necess- the necessity of bias in the system in mm-hmm. order for machine and it's and it's really controversial because there are some topics, some things you know that we the machine learning might be good at, but do we really want to predict certain things? And I, I won't get into that. I won't mention some examples, but mm-hmm. um, it can get really controversial quickly. But it's tricky because the field is going has to learn how to balance morality with uh, bias <laughs> uh, and have to, have to, has to make some decisions on um, on exactly what thresholds and cutoffs, what they're, be, what they're willing, how much bias they're willing to allow mm-hmm. into a system um, because there seems to be an accuracy bias trade-off. Anyway, it, it's, it's really complex and I, I'm not mm-hmm. doing it. I'm not doing the whole debate justice, but um, you just made me think of some of that. Yeah. I mean, one, one thing to think about here is that bias is an ambiguous word. So it has two sorts of meanings that are sure. very important to keep across keep separate. One is the bias we've just been discussing. So a creature might be biased to think the sun will, the light will come from above rather than from below, or that color is very important for sorting fruit Mm. or, um, or that, uh, you know, animals are often symmetrical. And then there's bias in a way that we talk about in sort of the political social context, which, you know, say like, oh, I don't want to hire women or something like that. And they're very, very different. So, you know, yeah, great point. A, a desire to reject the second type of bias shouldn't preclude you from thinking that, oh, well, humans must be biased to have some ideas and not others. Yeah. Thank you for, for that clarification. Uh, so I, I'm, you have so many juicy topics. I'm like, which one should we jump in right now? Well, why don't we just, just like go right for the why, why empathy sucks? No, I'm joking. No, mm-hmm. that's not how you would ever phrase it. I know. But, um, uh, but let's, just, let's just go into that topic because it's a fascinating topic. And I think um, you know, there's a lot of aha moments if uh, someone were to read your book um, against empathy. A lot of aha moments that like you know, maybe they'll read the title and they'll be like, oh, hell no. But then they'll actually read the book. And that's the experience I had <laughs> once I actually read your book, which I apologize for taking so long to actually read it. Um, it's okay. It's a lot of uh, really, uh, uh, really good insights. So can you talk a little bit about um, what are potentially some downsides of empathy and, then, and, and how are you defining empathy? Yeah, it, it, it's important. I mean, one thing I do, I, you realize most people won't get, many people won't get past the cover of the book. 
which is why I have a useful subtitle. So my title is uh, Against Empathy, but the subtitle is The Case for Rational Compassion. And one of the things I hope to do there from the get-go is get people to think, well, when he's talking about empathy, he's meaning something distinct from compassion. And the, the feel is in kind of a terminological mess, and I like to sort of stay away from the, the terms, yes. but just to get yes. things started. Um, there's one sense of empathy people have to mean everything good, love, kindness, morality. I'm not against that. That'd be mm. terrible to be against. I'm thinking of empathy in sort of a more narrow sense, the way many psychologists and philosophers use it, of putting yourself in another person's shoes and feeling what they feel. Mm. And I'm not entirely against that. I think it's an important source of intimacy between people. I think it's a great source of pleasure. I think a lot of, you know, a lot of the joys of life is being sitting with somebody else and they're having a wonderful experience and you're sharing their experience. Mm. But from the standpoint of making moral decisions and moral motivation, I've argued that it's a train wreck. Mm. And one reason to answer your question is that empathy in a sense is highly, is highly biased. It's much easier for me to feel empathy for you a guy who kind of looks like me, speaks my language, yeah. uh, somebody I know I'm familiar with, yeah. then empathy for somebody who has a uh, different skin color, different ethnicity, doesn't speak my language, frightens me. Mm. So there, there's countless studies finding that empathy is more naturally drawn to those who are similar to us, those who are safe, those who are our allies, our in-group. And a morality based on empathy then distorts our behavior in favor of the familiar. In some way, empathy is a wonderful ally for, um, for racism and bias, bias in the bad sense. And that's one problem with it. A second problem is, um, and just to get caught up in these political times, empathy could be, is, is often used by malevolent people to, um, to, to direct hatred towards some groups. Hmm. So one common piece of rhetoric these days is to talk about victims. And uh, so, for instance, one common thing to talk about victims of crimes by illegal immigrants. And, this, and, and people will tell these terrible stories of, of maybe some of them real, of horrific crimes. And they will use this as a mechanism to get people to hate illegal immigrants. And this is a standard playbook. Um, anytime somebody wants to direct your hatred against some group, they'll tell you stories of victims. And so empathy, I, I call these empathy traps. But, but empathy could be used to make the world worse and not better. So I think we're much better off making our moral decisions in a rational reason way, a reflective way saying, you know, look, I don't feel that much empathy for this person in Africa, a different skin color doesn't mean my language, but I recognize they're just as much of a person as my child is. Um, go, sorry, go on. Yeah, so um... – I think that's 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 uh, very good to point out those potential pitfalls. And I, I wrote this article for Scientific American recently, uh, uh, summarizing this study that shows that actually people who report higher empathic concern for others, like concern for people's suffering, actually are more likely to be politically polarized and to show less empathy for those they perceive as in their out group. So I think that's uh, like if you were probably writing your book when that study, you probably would include that study as further evidence mm -hmm. for this sort of thing. Um, something that I'm interested, something that's interesting is this distinction in the field between cognitive empathy and effect. Affective empathy. Yeah. It sounds like you were describing affective, uh, affective empathy, but That's you've right. also pointed out that, um, and, and this is where I, I went wrong. <laughs> I'm what I want to admit uh, in, in misunderstanding your argument. I thought you were making the case that, um, you know, look at all these things that go wrong with affective empathy. We need to cultivate more um, cognitive empathy, equating cognitive empathy with your construct of rational compassion. That's not in yeah. fact what you did. So it sounds like 
um, your idea of rational compassion is actually a different construct, maybe something like a new construct in the field. Um, it's not, it can't easily be mapped on to the, you know, the different components of empathy or et cetera. Would you say that's right? I, I'm, I, you know, it, it's, it's always nice to have the idea that you're saying something new, but I don't mm. think it's really that new. <laughs> okay. compassion, compassion is reversed to caring about other people, valuing other people. Okay. You know, okay. so, so if, if I, suppose I don't put myself in your shoes. Suppose I don't try to imagine what it's like to be you, but you matter to me. You're a person. I, I hope you do well. I hope you thrive. That's compassion. Call it concern. Call it kindness. Call it love. And rational means rational, which is that, that we should use the sort of principles of logic and reasons and facts to try to make things better in the ways we want to make them better. Gotcha. And so, the reason, so yeah. I would, I would distinguish that from cognitive empathy. That's a whole different thing, which is understanding what other people think. And cognitive empathy uh, can be useful, can be the source of much kindness, could also be the source of much cruelty. Hmm. Hi all. I'm really excited to announce that the psychology podcast is now being sponsored by better help the world's largest counseling service. BetterHelp has asked me to talk to you about your mental health and how to reach out and get help. This is a topic really near and dear to my heart, so I definitely wanted to get this message across. After all, you wouldn't hesitate to go to the doctor for professional care if you had a broken arm. Your mental health deserves the same attention. BetterHelp's mission is to provide everyone with easy, affordable, and private access to professional counseling anytime, anywhere. BetterHelp will assess your needs and match you with your own counselor from their network of licensed, accredited, and board-certified therapists. It's really great because you can start communicating in just under 24 hours. It's not a crisis line, and it's not self-help. It is professional counseling done securely online. What's really cool is that there's a broad range of expertise in BetterHelp's counselor network, which may not be locally available in many areas. You know, personally, I love it. I've started seeing a counselor at BetterHelp who has helped me with my intimacy issues, and I just love how non-judgmental and professional the counselor is. Some other cool things about BetterUp is that you're not limited to the 9 to 5 of traditional therapy, and you can log in to your account anytime to send a message to your counselor. You can even schedule weekly video or phone sessions and get timely and thoughtful responses from your own personal counselor. You'll never have to sit in an uncomfortable waiting room ever again. It's clear that BetterHelp is committed to facilitating great therapeutic matches as they make it easy and free to change counselors if ever needed. Also, BetterHelp is more affordable than traditional offline counseling and financial aid is available. So, look, you can get started today. Listeners of the Psychology Podcast get 10% off their first month by going to BetterHelp forward slash psych podcast. Again, you can get started right away and enjoy 10% off your first month of high-quality therapy by going to B-E-T-T-E-R-H-E-L-P dot com forward psych podcast. That's better H-E-L-P dot com forward psych podcast. Okay, now back to the show. Yeah, a lot of psychopaths are very good at cognitive empathy. They can really get in the mind of their victims. That's right. But they don't that's have right. very good uh, affective empathy. Um, that's right. But 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 maybe that's not true. So I, I, about the affective empathy part, something I was because you made a point about how people who are cruel um, can have use empathy um, in the service of being cruel. And do you think they still feel like like? Do you think like? Uh, I, uh, how long did I go without mentioning Hitler? But do you think Hitler could like? Yeah, I mean, right. That's like been like only fifteen minutes. But um, like, do, I mean. 
is that possible that he like did have some feelings in his life? I mean, he's still like, like, am I allowed to say he was still human? I don't know if I'm even allowed to say that, but you know, he was obviously a horrible human being, but like, do you think there's, he still like had these moments of like, you know, for his um, like, like people that he loved or people that he like saw as in his in group. Do you think he had feelings of empathy that would like be pretty much indistinguishable from like our me and you feelings of empathy? Yeah, of course. Yeah. Of okay. course, I mean, okay. people people think that these of these monsters, and I think I think it's very convenient for us to see individuals like like Hitler and say, "Oh, what a monster!" or Stalin or right. everything like that. Now, in one sense, they're a monster that they did great evil, but um, but basically, they're human, and most likely, their evil is motivated by the same thing that motivate your evil and my evil, mm. just you know, take it to a different extreme. So. You know the the, the high-ranking uh, uh, Nazis and and had families. They had children. They loved. They had uh, Hitler was apparently a vegetarian because he cared about the fates of animals. There's nothing inconsistent with that. So interesting. I hope I don't. I hope we don't get in trouble for <laughs> saying any of that. Well, well, but, well, yeah. well let me give, let me yeah. give a flip side. Okay. Um, Obama, who was a president I much love and much respect, okay. um, uh, agreed to have drone attacks which killed many innocent people, okay. wedding parties and children and so on. No doubt there's somebody, there's a, a podcast going on on the other side of the world, one person asking, mm. asking another person, say, is Obama a pure monster who loves killing? Yeah. Or does he have some kindness towards others who are around him? And the answer is, Obama is, as best I know, a family man, a good friend, a really, really nice guy who, because of what he believes, because uh, killed people. And now Obama's not Hitler. Hitler, I, I think Obama was perhaps be right in his drone attacks, and there's no defending Hitler. But the psychologies are the same. People could be really kind to those who are close to them and either savage or indifferent to those far away. And that's the human condition. So it's such an interesting example. It really is thought-provoking, and it makes me think of Roy Baumeister's book, Evil. I don't know if you've ever wonderful had a chance book. of reading that. One of my favorite books. Uh, I think it's book. really underrated. And, you know, just really showing studies that have been conducted on how we all think we're victims, <laughs> you know, like, yep. you know, um, and we think we're the ones that, you know, uh, we can't like think that, oh, well, maybe we actually transgressed too somewhat in, in this yep. situation. So it's, it's, no, I agree. It's a, it's a wonderful, it's a wonderful book. One of Roy's studies in the book, if I yeah. remember, you could correct me if I got this wrong, yeah. is he asked people to remember a time when somebody did something terrible to them. And people say, oh, my God, it was unprovoked, it was vicious, it was cruel. The person got the sadistic satisfaction from it. And then he asked people, well, what about a time you did something cruel to somebody? And people mm -hmm. say, well, I did that, but, you know, I had no choice. I regretted it. I didn't mean for it. I wasn't. That's right. And we, we see things so differently. No, I, I think Roy's one of our best commentators on human nature around. Me too. And I think, like underrated in terms of a lot of his books he's he's written i'm looking at my bookshelf right now because there was a book i was reading the other day that i was like how come no one's read this book it's on escape from the self um yeah somewhere around there and it's like what the, no one talks about this this topic but it's like so oh yeah escaping the self i have i have it hold on yeah. maybe I'll, I'll hold it up to like plug it hold on Maybe Roy will give me some royalties uh, from from this. <laughs> oh, oh, I have a blurred background. Oh no, this it's sucks. Blurred. I have a blurred. Okay, maybe can I do no, no, it? No, I can see it now. I can did see it, it now. You got uh, it. Uh, but then if I you do it in a certain light, okay. Anyway, you got it. Cool. Uh, and this is only for those watching the video. Obviously, um, those who are listening to it just in the audio version, you might want to hop onto YouTube in order to see that. 
Okay. So let's talk about why people enjoy suffering. And I, I should say sometimes um, there's a, there is a joy to suffering, um, but there might be some boundary conditions around that, some context, some things that we, you can elucidate as a psychologist. I hope so. Yeah, I'm I'm super interested in this. This is a book me I'm too. writing. I'm I'm like, oh. oh, you're writing a book too on suffering? Oh no, no, I said the me too. I'm interested in the topic. Oh, okay. sure. I didn't know I, you. I didn't. No, no, no. I didn't know you're writing a book on it. That's great. Yeah, that's great. Yeah, I'm yeah. Uh, I'm like I don't know a month away from a really really bad first draft. Um, but uh, but I'm very interested in why we choose to suffer, and I kind of think the answer is two parts. Sometimes we choose to suffer to uh, enhance our pleasure. We do it, and I'm thinking of cases there like spicy foods or saunas or uh, hot baths, um, BDSM. It's funny you mentioned Roy Baumeister because Roy mm-hmm. Baumeister in that book you held up yeah. has a really nice discussion for how we can get pleasure from BDSM. And it's one answer subtitle. is yeah. it, it, it is often nice to be liberated from our consciousness. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah. that's half the book. Is the sort of, and it connects a lot to the work of Paul Rosin, who coined the term benign masochism mm-hmm. and talks about chosen suffering of all sorts. The other half of the book maybe I think connects more to, the, to, to what you have written about quite extensively, which is I think part of a good life for many people, maybe not all, but for many people, is the pursuit of, of long-term goals. We call meaningful goals. And part and parcel of that is difficulty, is suffering. You, um, you, if, if you want to do important things in the world – Everything from, I don't know, going to war to raising children to climbing mountains to, to writing a book. It's difficult. But the difficulty is an indicator you're on the right track. If you looked at your life and you found it was just incredibly easy, pain-free, difficulty-free, at some level you're not doing things right. And so uh, suffering has another appeal in that way. It's an indicator that we're on the right track regarding our meaningful pursuits. Does that make sense? You've thought more about these issues than I have. Well, I want to suspend all my thoughts until I read your book. Um, and then um, I'm sure that you, my brain will be lit up. Um, but I think that those are certainly some factors that, that can help explain it. The, um, the particular, this one about the human need to overcome challenges. I think there's kind of like... Um, Actually, one of my intellectual heroes, Abraham Maslow, has a quote which I'll, I'll try to send you. I put it's an unpublished thing I put on my Twitter a little while ago, where he argues something like, "We can't help it, but create challenges in our way because we get bo- otherwise we'll get bored and and depressed because of our ex- we'll get existentially despair because of our boredom." You know, like we need we need. Um, you know, like we can't just sit in front and enjoy like Netflix all day. You know, like we need to kind of create these uh, mountains to climb and. You know the human variation. I think I think it's just fascinating to look among you know among our species that all you know all the ways that um, because of our consciousness and our complex consciousness and, and ability to have imagination that we can just conjure up um, in our imagination and in reality so many um, variations of things, mountains, mini mountains to climb, even you know that like other species don't would never even think of <laughs> like a, an ape. An ape would probably wouldn't. So. I agree with all of that, but let me ask you because yeah. I, I'm I'm struggling with this issue. Yeah. So knowing you, you'd be bored out of your skull watching Netflix all day long and smoking pot and, and so on. Are you sure that's true for everybody? <laughs> Are you sure that 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 there aren't some people who would find a life of simple pleasure sufficient? 
I, this is not a trick question. I honestly oh, don't I know. Oh, I know. I know. No, 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 no. I, 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 I encourage you in this podcast to push me or, or bring up any counterexamples because I really enjoy those. Well, I think that if we're, if we're really thinking about this from an individual differences perspective, which is what I do, most of my research focuses on individual differences, I'd be remiss to, to say um, that I didn't think there was something to that. So I think that the um, personality trait, which I've spent um, since you've known me studying openness to experience, is a really predictive uh, really, really predictive of a lot of things, including creativity mm-hmm. and uh, intellectual, the need for intellectual stimulation is a component of it, um, but also a need for, um, uh, you know, aesthetic, stim- you know, stimulation, like you know, beauty, um, things of that nature. Adventure seeking is kind of a blend of extroversion and openness to experience. Actually, um, it's a debate, but maybe adventure seeking is more part of the extroversion. But mm-hmm. I think that those traits would moderate this strength of this. So I made that this kind sense. of like general statement about humans. I think it holds in terms of like human nature, but I think they're like at, there are extremes of like extreme low levels of those traits where I think people would probably be very uh, content, uh, maybe like just, yeah, sitting there all day. Like they don't have a driving force to, um, yeah. you know, to do that. But I think maybe on average amongst human nature, we, there seems to be this like drive for, for, for export, you know, as I call it the drive for exploration, which I think as I make a case in this mm-hmm. new book I have coming out in April, I sent you a PDF of it, uh, in, in, in an email. Congratulations. Um, thank you. Did, did you get the email? I did. I okay, did. good, good. Um, no pressure at all, but I just wanted to make sure that it got through. I have an argument in that book about how the need for exploration uh, deserves a, a place at the evolutionary table, and um, and it can't be reduced to some of these other evolutionary drives that like Kenrick and others have made, like mate, the mating drive, or you know, even like Jeffrey Miller has, and that's an interesting topic. He's, um, uh, I think, uh, he's done great work on the you know the mating motive, but he he really does um, subsume. All these, all the higher parts of human nature, uh, you know, like like um, like intellectual, as as just like uh, signaling, you know, so that we can yeah. get mates. And I think that's actually too too uh, reductionistic. I think uh, the need for exploration, uh, you can make a case that it is a, a drive on its own. So, what do you think? Of, do you so, what do you think about that? Well, I mean, let me step. Back. I, I I find it really interesting. Let me just step back to the universality claim. So you're a young guy. I'm not a, a young guy, but I'm not necessarily an old guy. But I know people who are in their 70s and their 80s, and you talk to them. Some of them are in good health. They're happy. But they might play a lot of golf. They may, you know, socialize, see the grandkids, sit by the pool, read books, do crossword puzzles, and so on. And I look at these people, and I sort of say, where's the suffering? Where's the pain? (laughs) But, But so I wonder whether to what extent what you and I are talking about is developmental, is something which shows up mm. at some point in life, maybe phased later on. I think there is a lot to that. Um, and uh, it's certainly if you look at the um, uh, Erickson stage theory, you know, like there's this point above generativity, I think, uh, maybe like well, maybe when we become wise, if we can ever become wise, then we finally calm the beep down, you know, and we're like, you know, actually the wisest path is one of the simplest pleasures. I think there's a lot to that. Um, you know, again, I'm going to reference Maslow again because he's on my mind. He's been on my mind for years as I've been working on this book. But he distinguishes between the peak experience mm-hmm. and and, and, and in a developmental stage towards the end of our life, we actually, if we're lucky, we can start experiencing what he calls the plateau 
experience, the plateau yeah. experience. And I think this maps on nicely to what you're saying. I think that um, uh, to have like ultimate peace before we die, mm-hmm. um, I think it's best to um, have these plateau experiences where we get the greatest, they're not these big bursts of, mm-hmm. um, you know, I've overcome, I've, I've, got, I've reached the top of the mountain yeah. and, you know, then all the, the Google images, pictures of like reaching tops of mountains, you know, um, but a plateau experience is like, you know what, from here on to the rest of my life, I'm okay with what I've got. So I love my wife. I love my children. Yeah. I love um, my, my, you know, publishing one journal article a year from here on out, you know, like mm-hmm. God forbid, you know, like I, like you just choose, like, I'm going to plateau here and enjoy the rest of yeah. my life with peace. And I think there's a lot to that, Paul. I really do. But I think that in order to get there, I think you, um, uh, like there's this, there's still this natural inclination within a certain period of your life to be constantly mm-hmm. exploring, you know? I think that's probably yeah. right. Yeah. Well, cool. That was fun. Um, so let's talk about, uh, the psychology of expectation, uh, and I, and, and pleasure. Okay. Because it, in a lot of ways we talked about the joy of suffering. So I, I think yes. it's appropriate that we talk about, yes. there is a joy in pleasure too, isn't there? <laughs> Almost by definition. We're not masochists as a species. We're partly, ma- you know, like, I think you made that point in your talk and, um, you said something like, what are we as a species? You're like, well, we're a mix. <laughs> yeah. 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 I think we, um, we, we seek out pleasure. I think we seek out meaning, um, we might seek out difficulty and harsh conditions in part because it makes the pleasure enhance in part because it can connects to meaning and morality. I think it's complicated, you know, mm. and, and, and there's your point. I think you raised this in the question period of my talk and it was very well taken that seeking a life of, of seeking out pleasure and seeking out meaning and higher goals are not essentially in conflict. That's right. You know, you, you ask people, do you live a happy life? And you ask people, do you live a meaningful life? You know, and there's a correlation. They're not, they're not opposed. There's a lot of people who say yes to both. Sadly, there's a lot of people who say no to both. Yeah. So, you know, I'm sure there's some sort of commercial that said for this is a tagline, but you can have it all. You can have it all. Yeah. Um, uh, with a certain income level, <laughs> obviously. Yes. Well, income, I think it depends where you live, but, but as you know, income is correlated with pleasure, with happiness. Um, and uh it's like an inverted and, u-shaped curve it's oh like, you mean you think there's a certain point where if you make so much money you yeah. get less happy yeah well, there's a good data on that you know there's not like perfectly good data on that I mean, not like there's perfectly good data in anything but um research if your research shows that like if you don't beyond a certain point if you don't like spend your money well it actually can lead to like you know like uh the um uh paradox of choice kind of issues so huh. you, you kind of get overwhelmed with all the things you could have. I know, I know a lot of people are like, oh, poor, you know, babies, you know, like rich yeah, people. Well, but, but I think there's some, you know, it's interesting that among, um, you know, more people like would commit suicide you know, at higher, higher tax brackets, actually, than lower tax brackets. Uh, those lower tax brackets are actually just trying to survive in a lot of ways. Yeah. Is that true? Is it really true that, that I... Because the data I'm aware of would say that when okay. it comes to sort of experienced happiness, it goes up and up and up till like $100,000 or something. And then you get diminishing returns because, you know, obviously with each dollar you have, another dollar matters less. But I, but I hadn't known that there was um, risks at a higher point. That's, that's really interesting. Yeah. Um, 
it, 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 I, I think it's really that. interesting too. I think it's really interesting too. There's a really um, interesting chapter in one of my um, books on my shelf here called Spending Money Well um, that goes through and shows like people who spend their excess money on like uh, experiences, like growth experiences, like a new hobby or um, mm-hmm. uh, on, on like connecting with others can kind of forestall that effect. Um, but if you look on average past a certain point, I think you do see um, uh, lots of negative effects. So there is research showing that people above a certain ta- uh, certain uh, income level start being less generous. Um, they uh, report um, they'll be less likely to actually donate money than those who are poor are actually more likely to donate money. It's, it's a lot of counterintuitive things you wouldn't you wouldn't think. You'd think because you have more money, you're obviously going to be more likely mm-hmm. to donate, but to charities and things. But they're actually less yeah. likely to donate. Um, even just looking at money um, uh, makes you more selfish. Um, it, like in a psychology experiment, you, you, you like, just like put money in an implicit, you know, like John Bard sort of way. Um, you know, people are more likely to all of a sudden be more selfish. So it's like a life well lived and a life of, of, of meaning seems to be, um, one where you expand outside yourself. So therefore to the extent to which more money is detracting from that, it seems like it can get in the way of happiness. If that makes sense. I guess, I guess, it just seems like it seems if we were to take your advice, suppose I'm making, I don't know, $250,000 a year. And then I suddenly am offered to be making half a million a year. Hmm. Should I say no? <laughs> I always love your questions, Paul. This is, I feel like I'm back in, I feel like I'm back in grad school again. <laughs> this is like so exciting. Um, yeah, I loved it. You always did this. You always did this. Uh, so look, I wouldn't say no, <laughs> but, but I also worry sometimes that like I may, my, there's a, there's like, different selves we all have there's a i the the yet the self that would say yes immediately I, i'm not convinced that's your best self you know like is the, like is that your best self saying yes i want that that's sort of like the the greedy self in a way isn't it i mean what's going into your calculation there why you would say yes well um <laughs> money, money could do so much good well, it could do it could do it, good it, is it, that it, why it could, you would do it though because well, you'd be it like Provides security and freedom from worry. Okay. It can it can buy cool stuff. It can it can help out friends. It can be given to charity. Um, I mean, in some way, it's sort of an economic perspective. Half a million strictly dominates a quarter million because if you don't want the half a million, just you know, just take a quarter, take half of that, and send it off to Oxfam, and there you got it off your shoulders. Mm-hmm. You can't do it the other way around. That's true. That's true. But I suspect that most people, when given that choice, they're not. Their immediate thought isn't, oh, all that extra money means I'm going to be able to have more nonprofit organizations. I think there is maybe this human, I, I mean, I wouldn't say most people would probably, I don't know, am I being really cynical of human nature right now? I just think I, I, I've heard this before. I've heard, um, you know, there's a friend of both of ours, Lori Santos, she had a, oh, a yeah. podcast and went over some similar, similar issues and people are talking about the risks of having too much money. Yeah. What did she but say? So much of, well, she, she had on her show, she had a psychiatrist who works with rich people. And he said, oh, my God, there's so much problems with money. There's so much problems winning mm-hmm. a lottery. Yeah. Um, and there's a lot of anecdotes. You could see how that could work. Yeah. I'm just not honestly sure if it's true. Yeah. I'd really be very interested if it's, if it's true. Uh, so I'm actually very surprised if it turned out that people who are very wealthy commit suicide more than the very poor. It just seems, I mean, anything's possible. But, you know, the very poor have far more life stressors. 
I mean, if it were true, it would also lead to um, some odd policy decisions. Like, would <laughs> you would you want to say would you want to say, hey, we're getting so obsessed with healthcare for the poor and, and improving the lives of the poor, but we shouldn't be. They're better off. Well, if they're happier, why would you want to get and mess up their lives? Well, if they're I, happier than rich. We I should mean, put our interventions to help the rich. Well, no, yeah, I don't know if that necessarily follows, but um, uh, I think that it is it is really tricky territory if we really want to take the data and think about the implications. Because I do like doing that too. I like saying, well, if this is true, what are the implications? Opposed to like, let's not even talk about this truth, you know, like, and let's just talk about you know implications that will make everyone sound good, you know, feel good. So I think that that's there are some really uh, thorny implications of some of this research. Um, I think that. Um, you, it, 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 it's, it's really tricky because there, there are, I think, higher levels of mental health issues um, uh, among uh, those who are um, like reaching this point of life where maybe they like they have everything, you know, and I wonder how that relates to what we were talking about earlier with like the boredom and like the need to constantly have challenges and to have, you know, things to overcome. Um, I'm just wondering how it all how it maps onto that, and I, I guess you're, you'd be skeptical of that finding. So I, let me be 100% rock solid that I can find some studies that point to that. Yeah. Uh, I want to be I want to be sure that I'm 100% because I do have a section in my book if you want to read it called Money, Money, Money. <laughs> That's the title mm-hmm. of it, and I review in that section. So you could after we're done this chat, you can just go you know, Control F, yeah. uh, Money, 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 where I do. Um, talk about some of the studies that I've come across showing um, how it can make a, more money can make us more self selfish and lead us to make decisions that are actually against well being. See, the thing is, we know the things that are most correlated with happiness are are the really simplest things like connection and um, and you know having like. Um, even like religion, you know, like you know, and we should talk about religion as a bond, you know, as the function of religion. I mean, mm-hmm. some of these things, like you can go to a church, you, and, and and thankfully, I don't think you have to pay a lot of money to be in the church, but it can be one of the mm-hmm. most meaningful, you know, things that you do in your life, right? So, um, it's interesting to think about uh, about um, the real implications yeah. of this. Yeah. So I, I I agree with everything you're saying about what what really matters. It's just the thing is, with more money, you get what more of what really matters. If you um if you if you well, have a demeaning job that keeps you busy every day, yeah. you're not liberated to spend time with your kids. If you can't afford travel, you can't visit those you love. If, oh, you know, for sure. If, if 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 you are poor, you you have to worry about your kids not having adequate uh, health care or education or housing. There's so many things money could help out with in exactly the way you're talking about, including connections with people you love, meaningful pursuits, and so on. Well, that's, know, I've, been teach, yeah. I, I've been teaching intro psych for a long time. I've been teaching intro psych oh, for yeah. so long. I, I, remember remember. Giving, I remember giving lectures where I say, hey, psychologists have learned that money doesn't make you happy. And the students say, that's amazing. Who would have thought money doesn't make you happy? And then all of the new data came in, this whole wave of data. And, oh, more money you make, the happier you are. And rich countries, happier in poorer countries. And this, the whole, you know, and, and. Like a lot of things in psychology, uh, something which was really unintuitive and really cool turned out to make more sense than we thought it would. Now, hmm. again, it might really be at the very high end. It might be once you pass a million dollars to 10 million or 100 million, weird things happen. Hmm. And I could see, I, again, in theory, I could see that happening. It would isolate you from other people and so on. Hmm. 
Well, there is that. There was a study coming out that uh, confirms something you just said. It's showing that more people who use their money for time-saving activities, so they use their money so that they don't have to do like chores they don't want to do, and they can have mm-hmm. more time for the things that matter, do report higher levels of happiness. So I think I think the the key takeaway I want to make in this is that spending money well is 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 what's important, not just the money that you have. You know, um, but yeah. but but the but the more bolder claim, yeah, about you know, past a certain level, you are there is a, a robust correlation with low levels of well being and and even higher rates of suicide. I think I'd maybe want to look uh, more okay. rock solid into that literature. That's fair enough. And I know that Jonathan Haidt, by the way, has been. I don't know if I'm allowed to say this, but he's been working on a book for a long time on capitalism and why mm-hmm. ca- why capitalism is a good thing in terms of happiness and. Um, I, I hope he finishes that book someday because I think it'll be uh, intriguing. And uh, most of what John does is very interesting. So yeah, I'd like to see it. So. Yeah, I think it'd be really thought provoking. So I, I hope he. I know he's been working on that a while, and then he, he then he discovered this research and stuff on yeah, uh, you, you know, on coddling of the American mind. Yeah. He he put everything else on hold. I think you know to do that. Yeah. Um, okay. So well, this pleasure, the, you know, the expectation of pleasure. I mean, something that I thought was really interesting and in reading your book is just how much whether or not we actually. Um, enjoy something really does depend so much on whether we think we will enjoy it. Yeah. And it, 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 it does kind of blow your mind when, when you think about that. And it, it, it does relate to, I think, addictions as well and, and how we know um, addiction works in the brain and as, you know, this kind of learning mechanism and this, and even to the point when we don't actually enjoy it anymore, as long as our brain thinks we're going to enjoy the cocaine, even though we don't really don't want to do it. We don't, there's one less side of ourselves. We're like, we don't want to do it anymore. We don't, we're not getting yeah. the effects anymore. There's this other yeah. side that remembers that we once enjoyed it. And the dopamine is telling us, well, we got to keep doing it with the possibility someday we'll get back to that time we enjoyed it. Do you know what I mean? So, yeah, so. I, I have not in any of my work thought deeply about addiction. Mm-hmm. I mean, one, one, one very crude way of thinking about it is it's a nice one way to make sense of addiction at a very crude level is a way that Frankfurt talks about in terms of first order desires and second order desires. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I like coffee. I drink coffee. But I also don't mind that I drink coffee. I'm perfectly happy with it. Mm. Maybe a hallmark of an addiction is you might want it, but you, um, but you don't want to want it. <laughs> you know, I might smoke, but I really wish it didn't smoke. We took all sorts of treatments. I, I take drugs. I see somebody because I don't want that desire. And that's one way to distinguish addiction from other things. But a second way is what you're talking about. And it's kind of grounded in, in neuroscience accounts mm-hmm. involving different appetitive mechanisms in the brain. And you're right. Apparently, one of the hallmarks of addiction is they provide you some relief, but they don't provide you pleasure. Yes. So someone who, someone who is addicted to cigarettes doesn't really enjoy this, smoking a cigarette, but it, it takes away it takes away the pain. Of not having it. That's right. That and um, uh, there's kind of like this: these things we do in our lives because we want to relieve, as opposed to things we do mm-hmm. because we want it to grow. You know, like yeah. um, uh, Maslow called them deprivation needs versus growth needs. But there mm-hmm. are things that we do from sense of of deprivation, and it's almost like we feel a compulsion to do it, um, so that we can get rid of this feeling we have of you know this compulsion to do it. Um, versus that's right. That's a good yeah. way to characterize addiction in part. 
Yeah. So I was just I was just trying to to link that to to your to your discussion of expectation because I just like to link things on my podcast that uh, see if they go together at all. But it seemed like reading your book on you know pleasure, how pleasure works, um, this idea of just you know how much our expectation can influence things we enjoy. It can also influence things that we no longer enjoy, and that's made me think yeah. of that. Yeah. Does that make yeah, sense? So so yeah. You know, one the main theme of my book different things I pursue, but main theme is that what you think of something influences the pleasure you get from it. Mm. So if you think you're drinking the best wine in the world, it'll taste better to you than otherwise. If you think um, you're looking down the street and it's the love of your life approaching, <laughs> as opposed to someone who just looks like that person, it'll affect you differently and so on. And yeah. so just for, for everything, for sex, for food, for, for literature, for film, what you think you're experiencing really matters for how you experience it. It's so true. <laughs> it's so, I mean, it's like, it, it, you can't get more true than that. And, uh, and you've, and how does that relate to like, um, judgments of the value of art, you know, like, because we're told, you know, I'll go into an art museum. Let's say I go before people tell me, oh, I should find this one's worth $4 billion. That one's 7 million. Now mm -hmm. let's say I go mm -hmm. in and I don't know any of that information. I'm like, uh, that's a sucky paint. But then like, but let's say I go in and I am given all that information. Isn't that going to fundamentally alter my like perception of what I'm seeing and the value that I give to it and maybe even the enjoyment I get from it? I don't know. It will. It will matter. The story you hear uh, behind the creation of something. Mm. Um, but I'm not an art, an art skeptic. I'm not sure. I'm not sure if it's a bad thing. Let me give you another uh, analogy. There's a movie I want to see called Knives Out. And I just hmm. heard a commentary. It's a comedy. And apparently there's a lot of references to Agatha Christie movies and stories and Hitchcock movies and so on. Now, suppose you've never heard of Agatha Christie or Hitchcock. You go see the movie. You'll have a very different experience than someone who's more knowledgeable. Hmm. Is it a better experience because it's more naive? No. I think sometimes the knowledge of something, the knowledge of in the case of visual art, what a Kandinsky is, what, what Picasso was up to, mm. who Duchamp was commenting on, really can actually enhance pleasure. Mm. So when, when I say, sometimes people hear me say that our beliefs about something influence the pleasure we take from it and think, ha, well, we're just so dumb. Mm. But it's not necessarily the case. It could be our beliefs influence us and it's a good thing mm -hmm. because maybe we're, we're better informed. Certainly a wine expert. I am not a wine expert, but I am willing to believe a wine expert could taste things I cannot because Absolutely. of their expertise. So why not an art expert too? Absolutely. And that's a really good point. Um, uh, and, and they might get some enjoyment out of life that we'll never know what that's like. It's also yes, kind of sad. That's right. <laughs> that's right. It's a very, it's not, well, it, it's, it's only sad, you know, if, if uh, we each have at our disposal yeah. All sorts of tools to get better and better at learning things, you know. That's true. Um, you you want to learn about movies, just watch a lot of movies, study movies and so on. You want to, you know, some of this could just be had on your laptop. You don't even need all that money to, yeah. to get access to the pleasure. Fair enough. So you wrote an article, you, uh, you, you, you co-authored an article called Art and Authenticity, the Importance of Origins and Judgments mm -hmm. of Value. Um, does that uh, study and those findings relate at all to this idea that like people won't, even like touch some, if you say like this shirt was made by a serial killer, like people, what, what is it? People won't touch it or won't want to, 
or, or if you say this food was, I forgot, you, you mentioned an example of this in our lab yeah. meeting. So I'm, my, I'm trying to go in my memory from like 15 years ago. So please forgive me, but I feel like you said no, something. Um, yeah. So that work was actually uh, uh, Paul Ross and Carol Nemiroff have done mm. some nice stuff on sort of social contamination. So if you knew a sweater was worn by, I don't know, Jeffrey Dahmer, a serial killer, you might be unwilling to put it on. Mm. It would have bad associations. And, um, and similarly, uh, houses where there's been a suicide or a murder are hard to sell. Mm. And this is by people who don't have any sort of magical thoughts or whatever explicitly, but, but there is sort of this common sense feeling of contamination that happens. And um, in my work I did, and some of this work was with George Newman and some was Gil Diesendruck, I looked at positive contamination. So imagine a sweater that was worn by uh, George Clooney. Imagine mm. a desk that was owned by Albert Einstein. Mm. I'd love a desk owned by Albert Einstein. I'd pay extra for it, Me even too. if I couldn't brag about it. Just the idea, this is Albert Einstein's freaking Me desk too. when I'm working. Yeah. Yeah. It would, would be worth a lot. So, so we have both positive and negative contamination See. influencing our thoughts on things. Yeah, it so relates to your, the expectations we were just talking about. Yeah, That's right. Oh, so That's right. All the stuff is really, I mean, everything we talked about today is like related to it. Did some, well, uh, these, are, these are great topics. These are fascinating topics. So, so much fun. Um, so I did say I wanted to circle back to religion. So I was mm-hmm. going to ask you, would Tarzan believe in God? So this is the <laughs> title of a paper I wrote with um, Coney Banerjee. And it was a clever thing she thought of, a clever way of framing the question, how much of religion is innate? So you take it so plainly, just about most people in the world have some religious knowledge and religious background because we live in a religious world but how much of that's human nature? And so one thought experiment is you take a bunch of kids, put them on an island, somehow give them food and water and see whether they create gods. Will they naturally do that? And our answer is no. Our answer is um, kids might develop some sort of superstitious beliefs. They may believe in some deities, but surprisingly, if they have any belief, it will be uh, polytheistic, not monotheistic. Mm. So you look at, at, at the history of religion, religion starts off with many gods. Mm. The idea of a single god, what uh, Ara Noren Zion called a big god, is a relatively recent uh, invention or discovery, you could say. So if, to the extent we have a natural default for religion, it's for polytheism. Well, that's very interesting. Well, what do you, th- what do you see as some of the other sort of um, evolved mechanisms that religion or modern religion plays on that, that why religion is so pervasive and so popular. Yeah. yeah. Well, I think, um, in some of my work, I argued that modern religion often speaks to a common sense distinction between body and soul. Mm. You know, neuroscientists will tell you that you're a physical thing. You are your brain, but we don't feel that way. And so I feel like, you Speak know, for so yourself. say, you don't. You do feel like you are your brain. <laughs> no, I was going to say when neuroscientists say that that you you know I would say speak for yourself. Oh, yeah. <laughs> oh I see. You're, yeah. you're skeptical. I'm so, just joking. You know, so, so common sense says you know you know I could leave my body in a dream, float around, exchange bodies. That's common stuff in fiction. Religions talk about this. Um, religions uh, often have a notion of karma or karmic balance, mm-hmm. some sort of justice where where you know people get what they deserve. Mm. Religions often have uh, creationist ideas, which mm-hmm. is a very natural way to think about the origin of complicated things. Mm-hmm. And a lot of developmental work suggesting that kids quite naturally, when they see something that's complicated, say, well, something a person must have made it. 
the argument for design comes very naturally. Mm. And so these ideas end up coalescing and form the sort of cognitive basis, the factual basis of the world's religions. Then of course, there's much else besides. There's moral systems, there's rituals, there's community. But I do think these biases sort of form the basis for universal religious beliefs. So on page 198 of my new book, I quote you from your article, Religion is Natural, uh, in 2007. I say many people, perhaps most people, see religion or spirituality as central to their lives. Any complete theory of human nature has to make sense of this. Um, and I think that this is, this is still a, uh, uh, uncharted territory in psychology. Uh, my, my colleagues and I are trying, you know, particularly like David Yaden, who was a grad, who's a grad student at, mm-hmm. uh, University of Pennsylvania, um, really doing great work on this, but we've been trying to really understand like the all experience, you know, and, uh, mm-hmm. and it, it's, it's something that's so, um, tied to religion, but it need not be. I mean, these things are, we can, we can take them out of those contexts and we, and those experiences yeah. are still meaningful to us. You know, even if they're not associated with a specific duty, deity, what is it, deity? Um, So, yeah. (laughs) So, anyway, I thought that was a really cool paper, uh, Religion is Natural. And and I really do agree that um, uh, any complete theory of human nature does have to make sense to this. And um, and science has really, the science of transcendent experiences is an underdeveloped field. So, well... Though there are two things you could you could say religion is extremely important, um, but you could be skeptical as to whether, for instance, there exists transcendent experiences in any in any interesting way. Mm. You could talk about people's beliefs in them and so on. There's sort of a slippage there between certainly people have certain experiences and they mm-hmm. call them transcendent experiences, mm. but sometimes I think people go further and and talk about them in terms of of being in some way actually transcendent. Oh, that's interesting. Well, that, that's the, the term that's used in the psychological literature now, this transcendent experience. But I see what you're saying. There are there are humans, <laughs> individuals who use that phrase, um, uh, making a claim about um, where the experience is coming from, like the source of it. I don't think the psychologists right. are making that claim. Um, Fair enough. Yeah, Fair enough. Yeah. yeah. Um, okay, so sort of last question I have for you, Tay, because this has been such so wide ranging. I think we covered so much, and um, and I and I want you to to not be tired. <laughs> I want you to leave on a great note. Um, last question, um, you know, you wrote this book, Just Babies. Mm-hmm. What a great title! First of all, oh my gosh, like Just Babies and Just Babies. I mean, like you think of all the. I mean, how cool is that title? I'm, yeah, I'm glad you like it, Scott. Yeah. I, I tell you, 99 percent of people in the world didn't get it. Are you serious? And- and oh, I, I actually Amazon reviews saying the book says just babies, oh. but there's parts of it that aren't about babies. So one star. Oh my god! So, but anyway, I'm I glad you liked it. Yes, I, I the can't play even. Words was very important to me. Yes. It's so good. So the origins of good and evil. Now we have touched on so much of this throughout this whole thing, but I thought it'd be kind of cool. Just a last topic. Just let's go down from a developmental perspective. Are babies? Do they tend to be? Uh, like having the precursors to a morality there? Like, do you see, um, what do you see at the youngest ages that, that kind of, to answer this age-old question, are we fundamentally good or evil? Yeah, I, I, I what's interesting is you ask two questions. Which I, I, know, think are different. I know, I know. So I think the question, I think you do find signs of morality early on. You have a sensitivity to good behavior and bad behavior, Pretty early in development, you get some sensitivity to fairness and justice. Okay. You, um, you find suffering at the pain of others. You find some desire to help others. 
So, and you know, I think we're social creatures and the social and the moral tend to blend together early on. So you have a, I don't know what word you used earlier on, but a blueprint, a first draft of morality. Skeleton, yeah. And a skeleton, exactly, yeah, yeah. in the kid. Um, as for whether we're good or evil, though, I think the answer is both. I think our morality compels us to do good things, but also compels us to do bad things. Yeah. I think we're, we're, we're bad in two ways. One is we're simply self-interested which often clashes with morality. And that's part of human nature. A baby, a baby crying to get fed doesn't really care that much about anybody else at the moment, nor should it. But also, morality connects to punishment and cruelty and, you know, vendettas. And um, there's a case to be made that a powerful moral sense is responsible for an extraordinary amount of evil in the world. Mm. Well, that's interesting. A lot of uh, a lot of terrible, terrible things are done Indeed. by people not who are sort of rational self-maximizers, but rather who are caught up in a powerful moral vision. You know what a great point, and and I think a really understudied topic in in psychology is uh, moral uh, uh, righteousness. That that uh, a particular kind of expression of one's morality, moral you know yeah. moral righteousness, um, which seems to be something different than just well, just having a moral system or a code yeah. of code of ethics, you know, is yeah. d- it, the question is what do you do with the code of ethics? How do you yeah. feel about your code of ethics in relation to other code of ethics? I mean, there's so many interesting questions. Uh, there was this paper um, uh, that was interesting about moral by uh, moral grandstanding uh, philosophers, mm-hmm. and then psychologists tried to operationalize it, and I think it got really close to this notion of moral righteousness, but I think yeah. it's still an underdeveloped field for sure. Yeah. Well, yeah. but, there's, but, but in some way, people talk about moral grandstanding in terms of signaling, and I think it's a perfectly reasonable idea. Yeah. But look, suppose you think killing babies is wrong. You have a moral view. And then you walk down the street, and there I am, and I'm killing babies. You're going to be compelled to act. So morality, quite aside from signaling, gets you into other people's business. Oh, and sometimes that could be good. If you stop me from killing all those babies, you've done a great thing. Yeah, that's that's that that's a very good point. I mean, yeah, not all of it is virtue signaling. It's not that's right. I think there's a, an extreme cynicism that I don't ascribe to uh, about human I agree nature. With you. That everything I agree is with yeah, you. yeah, 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 yeah. Okay, yeah. we're on totally the same page about that. I yeah. I, I do and, and and that's a good place to end this on on the note that like we have talked about all the naughty bits of human nature, but I think none of that negates the fact there's also um there there is like aspects of human nature that's good and um uh, I'm, I'm trying to choose my words very carefully because, like, it's it's because uh, it's like nuanced. Like, if I say is moral, like, um, that's not quite what I'm saying. There's aspects of human nature that is cooperative. I don't know. Um, yep. Is that fair? You know, and that's definitely you know, fair. And uh, and there's a lot of pleasure that we can have as a species um, and shared 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 pleasure. So, um, Paul, thank you so much for being on my podcast today. It was such a fun as always to talk to you. Such a delight. Thank you so much for having me on. This was this was terrific. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Psychology Podcast. If you'd like to react in some way to something you heard, I encourage you to join in the discussion at thepsychologypodcast.com. That's thepsychologypodcast.com. Also, please add a rating and review of the podcast on iTunes and subscribe to the Psychology Podcast YouTube channel as we're really trying to increase our viewership on YouTube. In fact, many of these episodes are in video format on YouTube, so you'll definitely want to check out that channel. Thanks for being such a great supporter of the podcast. 
And tune in next time for more on the mind, brain, behavior, and creativity. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. It's a simple truth. No matter who you are, mental health challenges can affect you, and how you manage them can make all the difference. That's why everyone should have access to mental health support that meets them where they are and helps them get through. BetterHelp provides online therapy on your schedule. It's flexible, simple to use, and more affordable than in-person therapy. Connect with a licensed therapist selected just for you. Learn more at BetterHelp.com. That's better H-E-L-P dot com. If a new house is on your wish list in the next five years, grow your savings faster and experience your dreams with an Ohio Homebuyer Plus account from Kemba Financial Credit Union. A savings account specifically designed to save for a new home where you can earn 7% APY, a $500 matching bonus, and a $1,500 mortgage closing cost credit. Learn more at Kemba.org. Offer expires March 31st, 2025. APY equals annual percentage yield. Restrictions apply. NMLS 292230. Equal housing lender. Federally insured by NCUA. Live Nation presents Concert Week. Now through May 14th, get $25 tickets to over 5,000 shows. That's up to 75% off a summer full of your favorite artists like 21 Savage, Alanis Morissette, Cage the Elephant, Celeste Barber, Dirk Bentley, Fade, Hootie and the Blowfish, Janet Jackson, Kids Bob Kids, Megan Trainor, Bissell Fuma, Sarah McLaughlin. Get tickets to more than 5,000 summer shows for just $25. Until now through May 14th. Visit LiveNation.com slash Concert to learn more and plan your summer with Sean Paul, Sum 41, 30 Seconds to Mars, oh, and Two Door Cinema Club.